0: Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is The Great Big History Podcast. We continue our History 102, 1500 to 2000 series with the subcontinent of South Asia. Basically, we're going to talk about India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, until the arrival of the Europeans. So for those of you who haven't taken my History 101 class, we start with geography. We have the Himalayan Mountains, which are a massive mountain range, and that provides protection from nomadic invasions like the Huns or the Mongols. But it also provides isolation. There's really only two ways to get to the subcontinent, and that is oceanic trade, of which we have the Arabs, Africa, and Western Indian Indian Ocean uh, trade routes. And the more important... Hindu Kush passage that goes into Afghanistan, hooks up with the Silk Road, and you go right into China and left into the Middle East. The two most politically important rivers in the subcontinent are the Indus and the Ganges rivers. They allow for connection and northern unity, but they separate northern India from southern India. Why? Well, if you're looking at the video, You'll notice the Indus is on the left. The Ganges is the one that runs from west to east. Is on the right. You'll notice they do not go south. They do not connect northern India into southern India, the northern subcontinent to the southern subcontinent. So what they allow is for armies, trade, conquerors, religious folk, to go basically from Afghanistan all the way to the Indian Ocean, jump across to the Ganges, and go all the way to Bengal. But there is no easy way of then going south across the Deccan Plateau and into southern India, into the southern subcontinent. And so what this does is separate the two. And we're going to talk about this again and again and again. There is no geographically easy way to unite the subcontinent. And so the north is urban and wealthy and connected. The south, on the other hand, is rural and isolated and poorer. So what does this geography mean? It means India is hard to unite it's very diverse because since it's hard to unite cultures naturally develop and so india will have many different languages many different cultures many different gods and religions invaders are going to come from afghanistan what we now call afghanistan down the indus cross over to the ganges and march all the way to bengal and we will see this again and again and again if you took my 102 101 class we saw this back then trade is either going to come through the Indus, down the Indus from Central Asia, or to Bengal from Indonesia. And protection of the subcontinent means you have to control Afghanistan. It is the connection to Central Asia. It is the connection to the nomads. It is the connection to Persia. It is the major cultural connection of the subcontinent to the outside world. So, if you want to protect your kingdom in the subcontinent, in what we would call India or Pakistan, you are going to have to control Afghanistan. That is why, let's just say this now, let's put this out here now, why the United States was always going to, quote, lose in Afghanistan. From the moment we invaded in 2001 to now being, now we're leaving in 2021, we were never going to create a modern democratic capitalist Afghanistan in our image. Why? Because Pakistan wasn't going to allow it. Why? Because if you're Pakistan, you must control at least southern Afghanistan, the Pashtun lands. You must. It is the invasion route armies have to take. And so Pakistan was the leading um platform for the counterinsurgency against the Soviet Union in the 70s and the 80s. It was the platform for the Taliban to invade Afghanistan and take over the south, and it is the platform for the Taliban again to retake over the south. Once we leave, once the United States leaves. So for those of you who are Afghan veterans, I'm sorry. They didn't take my class. They sent you there on a mission to help people, and I hope you did. But if your goal was to change Afghanistan, it was never going to happen. And we're going to see this territory again and again and again be the major route conquerors are going to take. To invade the Indus, which is Pakistan, and then cross over to the Ganges, which is northern India. Okay, well, our first invader is Mahmud, Mahmud of Ghazni. Around 1000 AD, so while the European world is descending into the Dark Ages, or coming out of it after, you know, the creation of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Mahmud takes over a Persian kingdom on the Western Silk Road. He will then conquer Afghanistan. If you take a look at our map about the time of his death in 1038, uh, you'll see how big this empire will become. And he, he crosses the Hindu Kush, invades down the Indus. Now, he is a Muslim, and Islam believes in monotheism. Rule one is there is only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. Now, it's more complicated than that. There is the one God of which all the gods come from, and it's it's more complicated. But if you're in 1000 AD, and you were religious Muslim, and you are conquering stuff, you don't care about the... um the um, subtext of things. You say, you have many gods. Boom. And so they plunder Hindu temples. That's where the money is. And they bring Islam, but they also bring jihad, which means Islam and Hinduism are in conflict from the start. Now, Islam has entered the subcontinent before. The Umayyads were there. The Abbasids have have... uh, allies and the such. The Umayyads actually conquered part of the Indus River Valley. But there wasn't mass conversions and neither one was based in India. It was a province that was far away from Damascus and then Baghdad. It's across Persia. It's across a desert. It's over the mountains. So while important in their empires, it it. The Islamic effect isn't as important. Here, on the other hand, Mahmoud is from Afghanistan. Mahmoud is right over the mountains and he's coming down. Now, he's going to stay, and his dynasty is going to stay in Kabul. It's going to stay in Afghanistan. And they're going to plunder India and they're going to leave the provinces in the hands of vassals. They gain their independence and they pay their taxes. This will cre- lead to the formation of the Delhi Sultanate, which is going to form just as the Mongols are beginning their conquest of Jin China. Twelve oh six. Notice that twelve oh six. That's Genghis Khan is literally getting started. And what happens is it's an Indo-Muslim breakaway from Mahmud's successors. Mahmud's successors are not Mahmud. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to get a great king, and then the people after him just aren't as good. And if you're a millennial, you get this all the time from boomers, right? I'm a Gen Xer, so we we just get ignored. We we get forgotten about. But millennials are blamed for for ruining everything. They're lazy. They don't want to work. They're pampered. All kinds of stuff, right? They the boomers just gave up on Gen X. We are the slackers. We're all on dope. You have f you guys. The problem is those millennials, they're going to mess everything up. So we're going to see again and again and again these successors just aren't up to the job of the main conqueror, the main creator of these dynasties. And so what happens is you get a breakaway. Right? And so if you're watching the video, you get this breakaway. The Delhi Sultanate it will eventually encompass most of India. It's one of the great uh, uniters of the Indian subcontinent. Um... And it breaks away from this declining uh, Mahmud Empire of Mahmud's successors, just as the 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 Mongols are on their way. So smart for those guys. But what it proved was India had to be ruled from India. You couldn't rule India. You couldn't rule the subcontinent from Afghanistan from Kabul. You could. It's too hard to get over the mountains. Um, Even through the passes, it's too big of a place. It's too, the distances are too far. The the weather is just, and the climate is too different. You must be an Indian kingdom in India, in the subcontinent. Because the Delhi Sultanate is Indo-Muslims, and not Middle Eastern Muslims, it's Indo-Muslims, people who have converted, people who have moved, It also means India is here to stay. This is our first Indian-based Islamic empire. Islam and Hinduism are going to have to learn to live together. Now, that's a problem because Islam is monotheism, Hinduism is polytheism, and Islam has more or less plundered in some way, shape, or form northern India since the 700s AD. So there's, you know, we talk about Mahmood. He's, He's destroying Hindu temples, stealing all the money. There's some bad blood. Taylor Swift knows it. Taylor Swift is perfectly on point here. There is bad blood. And we haven't even really started yet. Now, the Delhi Sultanate is going to start converting people. It needs people. It can't rule from the Middle East. It can't rule from Afghanistan. It can't pull um, nomadic horse lords from Central Asia. It can't pull Persians in. It's going to have to run India With, quote-unquote, Indians. With people of the subcontinent. It's going to have to rule the subcontinent with people of the subcontinent. Which means it needs people it can trust. That's a problem. Remember, they're foreigners with a foreign religion. They're the conquerors. Why would native people of the subcontinent trust these guys? And so, what they're going to do is convert them. They're going to give them rights in exchange for cultural conversion. So the people who convert, and we'll see this with Protestantism in, in Europe, is the urban people. Urban Hindus convert to Islam in order to gain access to Islamic trade routes, government jobs, army jobs, not like soldier jobs, officer jobs, the ones that pay, the ones that bring respect. Urban Hindus, the ones with education, the one with access, the one with income, the one with businesses, are going to convert. Why? Because the Delhi Sultanate is part of the Islamic world. A world that goes in 1206 from Asia Minor, from the Turks in Asia Minor, from the Cedric Turks, all the way to the edge of China. And all the way down the eastern coast of Africa. That's a lot of people to make money with. That's a lot of people to trade with. Also, The people who will convert are low-caste people. Now, for those of you who did not take my 102, a caste is a group of people separated by essentially the jobs of their fathers. And this was a way in ancient India that the conquerors were able to separate themselves... From the native Indians they had conquered, and so they divided the children up by job. They said, "Your father is a warrior, level three, right? He's a he's, he's an war he's a warrior officer level three, right? So the children will be officers level three, and their children will be warrior level threes, and their children will be warrior level threes, and it's a job and stability." And community, because you would hang out your entire life with other warriors level three. Or if you were better than that, warrior level twos. Or if you were really better, warrior level ones. Those are your your generals, right? Those are your high officers, your colonels and your officers, right? Whereas your warrior level five might be your your non-commissioned officer, your sergeant. And what that gave you was community. All the Warrior Level 5s hung out together. All the Warrior Level 3s hung out together. Your Warrior Level 3 daughter married a Warrior Level 3 son. Those are you when you went to bowling. You hung out with Warrior Level 3 bowling night. And your team was a Warrior Level 3 team that bowled against other Warrior Level 3 teams. And so you got stability in exchange for community. Now... You could not move up, nor could you move down. So you don't get poorer, but the prob- one of the problems is you couldn't move up. You could never be, no matter what you did, become a warrior level two, if you were a warrior level three, no matter how great you were in the battlefield. So that's where samsara, the re- not really the rebirth of the soul, comes in. And karma, that if you were good enough in your life, you would be reborn at a higher caste. Well, what Islam does, Islam doesn't have castes, it's got class. All Muslims are the same before God, just like all Christians are equal before God, just like all Jews are equal before God. So there's no caste system. So for if you are in a low caste, which means you have a shitty job, Islam is a way of skipping. The Muslims are in charge, this is a way of skipping up into the higher castes. This is a way of moving up in the world. You convert and Islam and the Islamic government automatically says, all right, we're going to give you a better job because we trust you. And so lower caste people convert in order to move up. Islam is an easy conversion. It's got its five pillars. If you do more with the Quran, good for you. But you got your five pillars. Follow that. This is not uncommon. This happens pretty much everywhere. But it is weird to have elites and commoners converting at the same time to gain access to the Islamic world. What's interesting is who doesn't convert? Either the really poor people, the super poor people who have no access to the Islamic world or the middle class, that middle group that life is good enough the way it is why would you convert you own your property you own your land these muslim foreigners they'll be gone sooner or later and so that middle group the elites change because they can move up they 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 want they don't want to move down they want to stay elites so they want to have their their access to trade they want to have the government jobs they want to be army officers but also the people who are like you know, motivated people who want, who don't have a lot but want to change. They will, they will convert. People, in some ways, the what America is made out of, all these immigrants that aren't kicked out, that aren't enslaved, that aren't ejected, but the people who chose to come. You know, they were all poor. Nobody rich came to America and said, I am going to give up my rich life in. I mean, even Lafayette went back to France. Yeah, he, he was a hero and he went back to France. So. The group that comes is a poor group. Landless. Wage earners. But there's the opportunity to move up in the United States. Now, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. Enslaved persons don't have. Um, people ejected by pogroms or genocide. Uh, refugees, political and or economic. They, that, they're forced to come. But that's what we're trying to, to discuss here. The, the, there's a motivating factor of, hey, I could be, if I become Muslim, if I work hard, if I get the right job, I can, my my kids or my grandkids can move into the elite. That's the idea. They won't be. They know they won't be. But their kids might be. And their grandkids have a chance. In the Indus River Valley, this is tied to Afghanistan, to Persia, the Silk Road, and Mongol, China. This will become a future Pakistan. And then there's the Ganges River Basin, where the Ganges flows into the Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal. This is tied to trade in Indonesia. This will become the basis of Bangladesh. uh, Indonesia is also going to be Islamic. Indonesia, I think, is the largest or second largest by population Islamic country in the world. So it's one of those strange facts that Islam is actually more popular outside the Middle East than in it in a lot of ways. You know, whether it's Pakistan, uh, content, subcontinental India, Indonesia, you have these very large populations that are Muslim. So, how does Delhi deal with this? Well, different kings, different sultans do different things. They alternate between toleration, this Muslim minority knows it can be easily overwhelmed by the Hindu majority. So don't piss off the Hindu majority. But there's also, you get, because Islam is a conservative religion, of monotheism, you get times of conservative intolerance. The Quran says there's one God, Allah. Why should we tolerate these people who don't follow that? What are we doing? And you have the mullahs, you have the religious people, always telling you to convert, convert, convert. Islam is a religion of conversion, like Christianity is. And so there's always this, but if you try to force convert people, it pisses people off. And so the idea is you get these alternations. There's no wild swings. It all depends on the personality of the sultan and whether he is strong enough to tell them religious authorities, cool it, I got this, and can run kind of the sultanate on his own. This is not a recipe for conquering the world, for example. It's not even a recipe for conquering India. This wild flex, especially the times of Hindu, of conservati- of Islamic conservatism or Hindu oppression, leads to Hindu resistance. And in fact, you get religious resistance more than cultural resistance. In fact, culturally... The Indus River Valley becomes more Middle Eastern. It will bring in Persian. It will bring in Urdu, the language of the uh, Persian-based language. It will bring in the architecture. It It will absorb a lot of this culture of Afghanistan, Central Asia, Persia. But religiously, it's a much more difficult thing. And what you get is super Hindus, super religious Hindu. Hinduism becomes much more conservative and interestingly, much more doctrinal, which is unusual for polytheistic religions. Polytheistic religions are flexible. They say, hey, you have a god? That's okay, we'll add it to our number. We've got 150, boop, now it's 151. Polytheism, the wonderful thing about polytheism is how flexible it is, and what Hindu resistance made Hinduism inflexible. It made it as inflexible or almost as inflexible as Islam because it was resisting the inflexibility of Islam. So it's, it's, you know, like Newton's gravity, you know, momentum. It was becoming an equal and opposite force. It couldn't play loosey-goosey. It couldn't play like, hey, whatever. We got lots of gods. It's okay because Islam wasn't respecting that flexibility. This leads to Buddhism, which is invented in northern India, to being ejected out of India as non-Hindu, as not Indian enough, as, not, as being f- not us. And in fact, Hindu Buddhism essentially dies in India, and the biggest Buddhist places are, are going to be China and East Asia. That's where Buddhism... And Confucianism will go. It's already did that in the Middle Ages, but it will flourish there. Then there's Tamerlane. And we've mentioned Tamerlane a couple of times. 1336 to 1405. He called himself the Sword of Islam. So already, you know what kind of guy he is. He is the last of the nomadic conquerors. He's a descendant of Genghis Khan. He wants to put Genghis Khan's unified empire back together. He's kind of like a Mongolian Justinian. He's going to reconquer. Justinian was the last of the Roman emperors. He's, the, he's, he's a Byzantine emperor. He's based in Constantinople. But he saw himself. He acted like Constantine. He acted like a Roman emperor. He spoke Latin. He did laws. He built big buildings. He acts. He swag. Historians. I'm a historian who likes Justinian. I think historians like Justinian because despite it being a hundred years after the fall of Rome, Justinian looks and acts like a Roman emperor. Well, that's that's Tamerlane. He's going to... He looks like a Mongol conqueror. And he is going to try to put that empire back together. And so he conquers the Mongolian Islamic successor states of Central Asia. In 1398, he crosses into India and smashes everything. And the pinnacle of this is the sack of Delhi. The sack of Delhi is legendary. Like, it is the stories about the sack of Delhi by Tamerlane are like the sack of Jerusalem by the Crusaders. It is the the sack of Carthage by Rome. It is one of the great destructive acts that is just told in stories that go down in romances that are written about and then rewritten about and then novels get store, you know, about people who are stuck in the, in the destruction. you know. So there's no, like, the history of it is hard to find of what happened, who did what, because so much of it is legendary. The city is destroyed. The capital of the Delhi Sultanate is obliterated. It took 900 elephants to cart the gold away. There's also a story that it took nine months to cart the gold away. It's it's just these, it's basically, he smashed northern India and he impoverished it for a century or so. He did the same to the Middle East. And he died on his way to attack the Ming. After this destruction, this just rampage, through the delhi sultanate the delhi sultanate continues but it kind of limps along it doesn't have a lot of wealth it doesn't have power it doesn't have an ability to form legitimacy to make other people in the subcontinent listen to it and so there's no one strong enough to get rid of it and replace it yet but also there's no ability for the delhi sultanate to really impose its will again this is kind of the Sejuk Turks. This is what happened to the Sejuk Turks in Asia Minor when the Mongols showed up. They just smashed the Sejuk Turks and eventually the Ottomans will rise, but the Sejuk continue for another 100 to 150 years. But they're just not the same. In 1499, we start to get Sikhism as a new religion. And this is, in some ways, an attempt to solve the religious problem of the subcontinent. Guru Nanak spends three days in, quote, heaven. Now, you, 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 one story I read was the bosom of God. However you want to define it, it's in the presence of God, a singular monotheistic God. And so Christians and Muslims would call that heaven. Or Christians would call it heaven, Muslims would call it paradise. And when he comes back, he has the revelation that there are no Hindus, there are no Muslims, there is only God. And what people need is the service to one God, okay, so we got some in Islam and Christianity, and the service to humanity. Ooh, there's a little bit of Buddhism in there, and Hinduism. And so service to God plus service to humanity, these are the big pillars of Sikhism. And so what it does is combine the monotheism of Islam, plus the meditation of Hinduism, plus this idea of the five thieves, the things that steal happiness, that steal your, your goodness out of you, the five thieves, which is very Buddhist, right? The Buddhism is about attachment, it's about uh, obtaining happiness, by denying pain and suffering by limiting i you can't deny it by limiting pain and suffering and so he's combining islam with hinduism with buddhism or attempting to anyway there's no caste be very islamic right there's no heaven now that's hinduism there's no hell hinduism buddhism there's nirvana hinduism buddhism there's karma and samsara you do get reborn karma is your the good acts and the bad acts of your life are added up. And if you're good, you come back better. And if you are bad, you come down worse. And that's samsara. Samsara is the rebirth of the soul. It's not reincarnation. You do not come back as you. You come your soul comes back as a completely new form. The ideal is the paladin. In in if you play D D, if you play World of Warcraft it's the jedi knight it is what's known as the saint soldier in english and the it's 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 king arthur's it's galahad it's king arthur's knights it is bravery plus character in battle it's how one acts on the battlefield it's what men do and this is this is going to appeal to the martial ra- what's called what the british will call the martial races the 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 groups in india that are good at war and this is a bit of Islamic influence the Jihad, the Ghazi the idea that a a man is supposed to do war well and supposed to do it honorably the Mongols cut the heads off of all these people Muslims aren't supposed to do that you're supposed to convert people you're supposed to win honorably and so this leads to the conversion of the more martial Indian tribes people who like the fight like this concept War is natural, and it's masculine. We see this with the wearing, even today, of the kirpan. The little knife, the sword, the dagger that seeks wear on their belt. Like, there's no practical use of that. You're, You're walking around the subway armed. You shouldn't have that, but the idea is war is natural, and it's masculine. So, of course, you would wear a weapon. Why wouldn't you? And so that gets converted over to the modern world. So that the kirpan is one of these exceptions in in law, in western law of someone walking around armed. Going to school with a with a with a dagger. Now, that will be either dulled or it'll be secured so you can't just pull it out. That's the idea of it. Um that it's it's decorative. Because it's part of the religion, but it's not, you're not supposed to be stabbing people with it either, right? So the modern Western law tries to find this um, middle ground of allowing one, allowing you to keep, but also kind of taking away its function, which is war, but keeping its symbolism, which is men do war, men men fight. There's also, very importantly, the concept of the just war, that you're not supposed to just go out and murder people and kill people. And... No, there, there's reasons to fight, and there's good reasons to fight, and that's the defense of rightness or even righteousness, and that's a very Roman concept the idea of the just war. Romans are always justifying why they attack whoever they attack. They, The idea, the Romans never fought an offensive quote-unquote war, or at least the Romans tell you they never afford an offensive war. Tell the people they invaded that it was an offensive. But there's this idea of ethical warfare. Islam will pick it up from the Romans. So, um, there's no reason so the, I'm not saying that it's they're taking it from the Muslims, that Sikhs are taking this from the Islamic idea. It's part of the sauce. I mean, you know, it's part of the, gr- the martial races are going to have a f- form of ethical warfare, too. Um, and so the idea is that it's part of this, like, cultural sauce of all these people mixing with each other. Romans and Muslims and Islam and and all of the, and Indians and 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 the peoples of the subcontinent are all mixing and all these ideas are mixing and nanuk to guru nanuk i've heard it pronounced nanuk if it's nanak i am sorry if i've said nanuk i've just going with i watched the youtube videos and said tell me how to pronounce this so i could be completely wrong But it's the idea of ethical warfare. He's combining different ethnicities, he's combining different identities to make a new whole. So, what this is, what Sikhism is, is a liberal way for major religions to live together without one having to destroy the other. That instead of being Muslim or Hindu, you could all be Sikh and you have pieces of both of them melding together. It's a very liberal idea, and it's an ideal. And had Sikhism spread, I mean, it's the fifth largest religion in the world, don't get me wrong, but had it become the major religion of Islam, of the Islam, of India, you might have been able to get a united India that could then be strong enough, efficient enough to resist the Europeans. Instead, you have, and you still have it today, this division between Islam and Hinduism. That, in anything gets worse as this class goes on. So that the partition in 1947 is a humanitarian disaster. I mean, there's genocide going on. There's, there's, there's Hindu hit squads murdering Muslims. There's Muslim hit squads murdering Hindus. Millions of people become refugees as they try to cross the borders. The subcontinent is still scarred by this, by the partition of nineteen forty. It is, if there is anything the British Empire did badly and will be one day, or should be one day, really raked over the coals, there's the slave trade, and there's the partition of India. Now, the slave trade is the slave trade, and we're gonna talk about that. I mean, the British really create this, they don't create the slave trade, They make it into, they they industrialize the slave trade. But the partition of India is a disaster that the British caused. And 400 years earlier, the 10 gurus of the Sikhs were trying to create a new ideal that could appeal to everybody that could harmonize, that could bring all these people together, the monotheism, but also the scriptures and the literacy and the hymns and the music and the, the, the nirvana, the karma, even the caste, even though there's no caste, but even, even the caste of the hidden could bring them all together to form a more cohesive whole. That it fails is a major problem because it will allow the divisions within India to crack wide open, to to open up into full-scale war, civil war, if you want to call it civil war, and invite in foreign invaders. This brings us to the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire is the last kind of great empire before the British show up, though there is a confederation, the Maratha Confederation. Um, but the Mughal Empire is the last Afghans, Af- Afghani ba- based, northern Indian based Islamic empire. It is another Mongolian Turkish Central Asian kingdom based in the north of the Hindu Kush, based in Afghanistan. And now we get Babur, where the elephant is named after Babur, the great conqueror. And he completely absorbs the Delhi Sultanate. If you if you go back, you'll see the Delhi Sultanate in the in the map on the lower left. If you're watching the video, that Delhi Sultanate is completely absorbed by the Mughal Empire. Uh, most of at least at the beginning, most of the Indus and all uh, almost all of the Ganges. They introduce Turkish cannon to Indian warfare. They bring gunpowder into Indian warfare. But it rapidly falls behind the Europeans. One reason is weather. It is hard to maintain gunpowder, cannon, in the monsoon weather. Babur will be a great conqueror, but the real great is Akbar. Akbar the Great. 1556 to 1605. He creates, while Babur has guns, Akbar makes his army a firepower army. It looks kind of like the Turkish army. And the Turkish army in, well, by this point, it's beginning to be overshadowed by Europeans, but still one of the great armies in the world. The Turkish army of 1500 is an army capable of conquering Europe. Massive siege guns overwhelming manpower. He's willing to hire Sikhs and Hindus into his army. This is a Mongol Qing tradition. You know, this is the nomadic tradition. You're willing to hire people who have skills that you don't have. And Akbar is related to or claims to be related to Tamerlane, Timur, Genghis Khan. He creates a bureaucratic state, an efficient government, local independence, right? He's going to let Hindus run Hindu divisions, provinces. And he's going to let Muslims run Muslim provinces. He's going, to, he's going to increase trade. So that India in 1600 is the second largest economy in the world. And has a large manufacturing base. It is 22% of the world's GDP in 1600. That's second only to Ming China. He's going to innovate on the law, toleration for non-Muslims. He's going to eliminate the religious tax, which is a big deal because the religious tax, remember, if most people in, in, in the Indian subcontinent are Hindu paying that tax, that's a lot of money he's turning down. The idea of the religious tax is Islam doesn't force you to convert officially. You can maintain your religion. You're supposed to become Muslim. But you can maintain your religion if you pay a tax. You pay a fee. He eliminates that. So that's a lot of money he's giving up. It makes him more popular, but it's a lot of money left on the table. He allows for local judges to make rulings using traditional Hindu standards, or in places that are Islamic, Islam standards. That's good for peace, but bad for unification. He's basically allowing his empire to he is in charge of it but culturally it's going to remain very localized which is fine you get peace but you're not getting efficiency and unity so what if your your successors are not as great as akbar the great at holding this all together culturally he's going to bring in persian influences especially language urdu and most importantly for us today architecture and that's how we get to taj mahal built by the success, successors to akbar shah Jahan which name means king of the world in the 1630s while europe is fighting the the 30 years war shah Jahan is building the taj mahal it's in akbar's second capital it's not in delhi Is is in the second capital. And he's built for his wife. His favorite it's always said his favorite wife, but I don't like saying that, even though I just did. Because what if you're not his what if you're his second favorite wife? Like, this is what he built for his favorite wife. What about the second favorite wife? I mean, it that this hurts. But she's important. Mahal is important because. The Taj Mahal was built for her because she, gave, she died giving birth to their 14th child. And let's be honest, my grand, great-grandparents, great-grandmother on my mother's side had 14 children. My, my grandfather was the ninth. He had 14 children. You have 14 children. You deserve a Taj Mahal. You deserve a building that, that celebrates you that way. Ideally, you should be alive so you can enjoy it. But she died giving birth after 30 hours, a terrible, horrible uh, labor, and he will spend a lot of money building the Taj Mahal. He also built the Red Fort, which is um, the palace complex of the Mughal court in Delhi. This is akin to the Ming's forbidden city. It's, it's a palace complex fort within the city. Again, meaning the same thing, like, like the Forbidden City, the expectation is sooner or later it will be attacked, and if the capital falls, like it did to Tamerlane, you want a fallback, you want a fallback position that can hang out that you can be besieged in, but can last until other armies come and save you. So this is telling you by building the Red Fort, it's telling you that even at the height of Mughal power, it feels besieged by what's going on in Central Asia, by what's going on, the chaos in the south of the subcontinent. So it needs to protect create a fallback position within its own capital, a kind of a safe room. That's the Ming forbidden city. That's the Red Fort. Shah Jahan's Third son, Aurangzeb, will, after a civil war, take over. Now, Shah Jahan won a civil war as well. So, that's it's already telling you that there's a problem. That Akbar wins, but they have enough sons that succession is a problem. And that every successor is going to have to defeat his brothers in order to reunify. The Mughal Empire. Well, that's a problem because it means the Mughal Empire every time a Shah dies, every time a leader dies, is at, is one, civil war, and two, about to fall apart. To break into pieces. And Aurangzeb is an intense Muslim. Unlike his grandfather, um, unlike his grandfather, Akbar, he is not going to have toleration. I think it's his grandfather. I don't think he's a great grandfather. But but unlike Akbar, he is not going to have toleration. He is going to force people to convert and that will raise revolts against Mughal rule. Basically people revolted because they gave Aurangzeb a WTF. For 50 years, 60 years, we've been allowed to live in peace and quiet. While you ran the show. And now all of a sudden you're saying, I have to convert? I have to change? No. And so you get internal revolts by a Hindu majority. Remember, they outnumber the Muslims by a lot against the Mughals. Plus, Aurangzeb is going to try to conquer the Hindu South. So he's going to try to expand the Mughal Empire, right? He's got civil war. He's got a religious civil war. He's got the Reformation going on in his backyard. And he's trying to conquer the rest of Europe at the same time. Plus, he's got war versus nobles and those independent kings that Akbar was, like, cool with as long as they listened to him. So he's trying to unite Akbar's empire into one whole and also make it Islamic. He's trying to make... He's trying. He's trying to go from a buffet. I don't know what he's trying. I-, I don't know what good he's trying to mush it all together, all these different parts, and trying to make it into one whole. He's trying to make a sausage. He's trying to make a sausage. I guess and he's got all these different meats, and he's trying to put them all together and make a whole out of it. So he's warring against his own nobles. He's warring against these independent "quote unquote" kings that listened to Akbar but we're technically independent. He's making war on the Hindu south, trying to conquer um, Hindu kingdoms that might be helping the Hindu insurgency in his own backyard. So he's fighting the world of the subcontinent. You can imagine how well that goes. And so what is the result? His empire begins to break apart. You get a resistance now, part of the advantage Aurangzeb has is the technology. He has gunpowder, he's got the cannon. He can defeat guerrillas. He can defeat insur- peasant insurgents. He's, he can even fight these. He's got more power than the people he's fighting. The problem is he's like a bear fighting dogs, right? He can, he can whack them, but there's four other dogs. And so what happens is the empire begins to break apart and a new alliance forms to fight the Mughals, and that's the Maratha. The Maratha Confederacy arises in the south. This is our first Hindu kind of super empire and gains control of central India. In order to defeat the Mughals, the Hindus are going to create an empire as efficient, as wealthy, as organized, well, almost as organized. It won't be as organized because it doesn't have, it's it's a confederacy, it's an alliance of groups, all united by wanting to defeat the Islamic Mughals. But it's too diffuse. It's too diverse to hold together. Local leaders have independence, and they could do their own things. And so even though you have, like, quote-unquote, a prime minister, a leader who's elected, not everyone listens to that person all the time. And these local leaders have independence and they're going to make deals with the French who show, start showing up in the South. They're going to make deals with the English in Bengal. And what happens is India begins to break up into some 3,000 little princedoms, Because the English and the French are going to be like, hey, you want some independence? And they're going to say, great, yes, I do. I'm like, okay, listen to us and not to the Maratha. Listen to us and not the Mughals. And we'll make a deal with you. So all these local lords, like right, the war versus the nobles and those independent kings, they're going to make deals in order to remain, quote-unquote, independent with the, with the Europeans. And so both the Mughals and the Marathas f- begin to collapse. And as they collapse, they fracture. They break into pieces. So in trying to weld his fractured India into a hole, Orangazab actually accelerates its dissolution. And that is where we will end, with the Europeans showing up and starting to take over in India. There was a lot. We did a lot of different kingdoms, but I, the main theme of that is the conflict between Islam and Hinduism, because that is the conflict we're going to see in the next two parts of the class, especially in the modern part. I mean, that's a major problem today. Uh, the The current prime minister of India, uh, Modi, is a Hindu nationalist, proudly nationalist, saying India should be for Hindu Indians, that the Muslims aren't really... He's not... I, I don't know enough Indian politics to know if he's quite said. The, the Islamic minority is not Indian... But he's going that way if he hasn't said it already. That's the fear if he hasn't said it. I haven't kept up enough. I should read my diplomatic magazines. But be safe. Take care. Have a good day.